podcast is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Landon Lorenz. Dr. Lorenz is an assistant professor in the Department of OBGYN here at the University of Oklahoma, and he's the director of our Women's Health Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lorenz. Thanks for having me. On the podcast today, I'd like to talk about something that I feel like I didn't have to deal with until I left residency. I really didn't encounter much of it prior. That is the evaluation and treatment of menopausal symptoms. Yes, we all know that the average age of menopause is 51, that we diagnose menopause as 12 months of amenorrhea, and that we can also diagnose it with an elevated FSH. The problem comes when you have a patient who is experiencing menopausal symptoms and wants treatment. I don't remember really anyone coming to me during residency for the treatment of menopausal symptoms, but now I have patients Googling menopausal treatments, going to these wellness centers, getting pellets and implants and all sorts of other stuff. So today I'd like to focus on just that. How best do we treat women with menopausal symptoms? Well, that's right, Katie. The treatment of menopause is, a, is confusing for both providers and patients, and it's also filled with a lot of misconceptions. Uh, first, I think it's important to recognize that patients seeking treatment options for menopause, uh, especially symptoms like hot flashes and vaginal dryness, aren't strictly part of the menopausal population per se. These symptoms can begin several years prior to menopause. Uh, these years of menopausal transition or perimenopause can also herald changes in the menstrual cycle which prompt office visits due to patients' concerns. Vasomotor symptoms, sleep disturbances, mood lability, and vaginal dryness are all symptoms which, re which reach peak frequency for the two or three years just before and just after the menopausal transition. Well, thank you, Landon. Let's start by talking about how to decide who to treat for menopausal symptoms. Well, it's absolutely clear that estrogen is an effective treatment for many of the symptoms of menopause, and it may have other health benefits as well. Unfortunately, there's a downside to menopausal hormone treatment as well. The Women's Health Initiative trial, which followed over 27,000 menopausal women, really represented a sea change in how practitioners viewed the risks and benefits of hormone therapy. As you remember, the study was stopped in 2002 due to concerns about the observation of increased risks of breast cancer, uh, and those women who are receiving treatment with conjugated equine estrogens and progesterone. In the aftermath of that study, the use of menopausal hormone therapy really plummeted. And since that time, we have gathered more evidence to help us understand what the true risks and benefits of, of hormonal treatment are. For example, we now know that some of the risks of hormone therapy may be much less for women in their 40s and 50s compared to the women in the WHI trial who had an average age of 63. So what you're saying is that younger women with menopausal symptoms may benefit from hormone therapy without excessive risks. Yes. In reality, the vast majority of women in their 40s and 50s can benefit from hormone therapy with minimal increases in their risk of breast cancer, stroke, blood clots, or cardiovascular disease. And remember, hysterectomized women receiving estrogen alone for treatment didn't demonstrate an increased risk of breast cancer in the Women's Health Initiative. As always, risk should be individualized to a patient based on her history. For example, women with history of breast cancer or DVT or stroke are likely never going to be good candidates for hormone therapy with estrogen. So what benefits should these women expect to gain? 
Well, estrogen clearly improves symptoms of vasomotor uh, instability, vaginal dryness. There also seems to be significant benefit in terms of mood lability, depression, and sleep disturbances that are associated with menopause. I've heard a lot of talk about benefits in cognition, prevention of dementia. What do we know? Is there any uh, anything about preventing dementia or Alzheimer's with estrogen? Well, it had been thought that estrogen could improve cognition in menopausal women and perhaps decrease the risk of dementia as well. The Women's Health Initiative, however, found an increased risk of dementia as well as worsening cognition in both the estrogen and estrogen plus progestin arms of the study. Again, this was an older aged cohort. Uh, many of our women who are seeking treatment for menopausal symptoms are in their late 40s and early 50s. And there is some data to suggest that hormone therapy in early menopause may decrease the risk of dementia, but it's not a settled issue. Currently, the Endocrine Society recommends against the use of hormone therapy for this, or really for the prevention of any other long-term health benefits such as osteoporosis or cardiovascular disease. And this is just because there's lacking evidence that the benefits of these treatments, which may be effective, uh, outweigh their risks. Okay, makes sense. So once you decide to treat someone, how do you decide what medications and what routes to treat them? Well, since there doesn't seem to be much benefit from progesterone hormones in terms of reduction of menopausal symptoms, combining estrogen with a progestin is solely used to prevent endometrial hyperplasia and cancer in women who still have a uterus. Estrogen itself is available commercially in a variety of oral, transdermal, and transvaginal preparations. Combination estrogen and progesterone formulations are available in oral and transdermal preparations commercially. Transdermal or transvaginal administration may avoid some of the decrease in libido associated with increases in sex hormone binding globulin compared to oral administration. And transdermal or transvaginal administration may also decrease the risk of venous thromboembolism. Uh, but evidence here for both the decreased risk of VTE and decreased uh, libido is inconsistent. Okay, speaking of libido and sexual dysfunction, is there a role for testosterone in hormone therapy? One of the most common complaints I see in my clinic is decreased libido. I've got it. How do I fix it, especially in postmenopausal women? Is it safe? Should I use testosterone? Well, that's a good question. As to safety, there isn't much evidence to tell us what the long-term risks of testosterone therapy in women are. We know that it may alter lipid profiles, which could theoretically uh, increase cardiovascular risks in menopausal women. And we know that superphysiologic doses would also create a risk of hirsutism, acne, hair loss, or even virilization. As for benefit, again, the evidence is limited, but there may be some improvement in domains of sexual function. One population of women who may have particular benefit are those menopausal women who've had their ovaries removed. Uh, as you remember, the ovaries do continue to produce androgens even after menopause, and taking this away may make a clinically significant difference in terms of libido and sexual function. Okay. So I counsel my patient. She wants to use testosterone. How do I write for it? How do I give it to her? Do, uh, when do I check labs? Do I just say, come back if you grow a beard? Like. <laughs> well, one of the main problems with testosterone is that it's really only commercially available uh, and FDA approved for treatment of men with androgen deficiency. In the past, there have been some products commercially available for women, but I don't think they even uh, manufacture those anymore. So really, you have to rely on compounded drugs. Um, remember that testosterone is a controlled substance, so it has to be written for accordingly. Uh, as for lab monitoring, there really isn't any guidance on this, and, you know, again, evidence is limited. Okay. 
So um, that's helpful. So compounding pharmacies can help me write for the testosterone treatment. Yes, and they can also combine it with uh, compounded formulations for estrogen or estrogen plus progestin therapy. Fantastic. Okay. Now, how about those patients who don't want estrogen or they aren't a candidate for estrogen therapy, like my breast cancer patients? What, what do I tell them? Do they have options or live with it? Uh, yes, they have options. SSRIs such as fluoxetine or paroxetine or SNRIs like venlafaxine uh, have been shown to reduce vasomotor symptoms as, as have gabapentin and related drugs like Lyrica. While nothing is as effective as estrogen for vasomotor symptoms, the SSRIs and SNRIs are also effective treatments for depression or mood lability associated with menopause. For vaginal atrophy, topical estrogens can be used without the risk of endometrial hyperplasia if dosed appropriately. In other words, it's appropriate to use these alone in women who have a uterus without using an opposing progestin. It's also appropriate to recommend comfort measures for women with mild hot flashes, such as lowering the room temperature using fans, dressing in layers of clothing that can be removed, or avoiding triggers such as spicy food or stressful situations. These, however, aren't likely to be too effective in women with moderate to severe uh, vasomotor symptoms. Fantastic. Um, okay, what about like black cohosh? Um, a lot of women are trying these like herbal substances. They buy herbs from like Canada or something. Uh, well, complementary and alternative medical strategies such as vitamin E, isoflavones, or those the soy-based products, black cohosh, and acupuncture have in some studies showed, showed benefit and others not. Uh, there's a substantial placebo effect here. Um, Evening primrose oil, flaxseed, those two don't seem to have any benefit at all. Okay. Um, and I'm sure it's also good to remind your patients that these could have harms uh, since they're unregulated substances. Absolutely. That's great information. Okay, I'd also like to talk about cost. All of these medicines are fairly expensive, right? I get a lot of complaints from my mom, other women, like, my estrogen <clears throat> patch is so expensive. Why is it so expensive? Um, so can you talk about cost? Well, oral estradiol um, is inexpensive and available in generic forms, uh, but the vaginal estrogen preparations are surprisingly expensive. Uh, although you need to be careful using compounded drugs because of concerns of, of efficacy and, and appropriate uh, uh, dosages, um, compounded topical or vaginal preparations are cost-effective alternatives, keeping in mind that your patient is likely going to have to be paying out of pocket if a commercially available uh, drug is, is uh, available. Okay, so just uh, the cheapest thing in review is going to be your oral estradiol, and then comparing the cost of compounded versus those commercially available other preparations. So that's great information. Okay, I'm sure our listeners today have learned lots of new stuff. Is there anything else that we should know about? Well, the North American Menopause Society is a great resource. Their website, menopausedoc.org, has a lot of useful information there. And they have a publication called Menopause Practice, uh, which I found to be an excellent resource. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you again, Dr. Lorenz. Well, that's all we have for you today on menopause. If you'd like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast or if you have comments or questions, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's K-A-T-I-E-S-M-I-T-H at O-U-H-S-C dot E-D-U. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University.